If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to look at Colossians 1, verses 3 through 23 this morning. I know you were expecting a sermon in Acts. I'm just going to let the tension build for another week or so. Uh, One of those weeks where um, I developed four different sermon outlines based on different things that the Lord was doing. Uh, And having not preached for a few weeks and having uh, just about to jump into um, what could be a two to three year fall series, I'm still trying to work out the details in dividing up acts into manageable pieces uh, for us. Uh, I thought it would be appropriate to do a buffer sermon uh, as we closed out the book of Proverbs uh, last week that we studied for two years. And then as we uh, start to, before we jump into another one, this will be a bit of a buffer sermon. If you're new to church, uh, this is a part of the worship service where we, we listen to a message from the Bible. And so if you don't have a Bible, uh, you could probably just quickly download an app. I recommend the ESV app. It's very user-friendly. Or if, if you want a paper Bible, we have a free one available. You can keep it. Uh, it's in a chair um, underneath in front of you, underneath one of the chairs in front of you. And if somebody knows what page Colossians 1 is on, just uh, let me know in that gray pew Bible. Uh, Thank you, 572. So if you don't have a Bible, pick up a gray one there, and it's on page 572. We always encourage you to have a, a paper Bible. Um, just a few weeks ago, I did the, uh, the uh, funeral service uh, for Ruth Keller, and uh, one of the greatest joys for me was uh, examining her two paper Bibles and looking at all the notes that she had taken and looking at the verses that she highlighted and the exclamation marks when she came across a truth that thrilled her soul. And so we want you to have a paper Bible. Uh, of course, it, um, you know, if somebody has access to your phone, they may not be able to see notes in your phone um, in those circumstances. So I always encourage your paper Bible. But during this time, it's, it's our goal, my goal, that uh, I preach in a way called uh, expository and exegetical, which is different than topical. Uh, My goal for you is that you look at the verse, and we go verse by verse, and that you should never wonder where I got that point. Where's that coming from? You should, it's my goal that you should always look at the text that we're in, and that you should anticipate what I'm going to say next based on the outline of the text itself. It's always my goal to, to make this uh, message easy for kids to follow along with and to take notes and to look at the text that we're in. And a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to, to train um, the young people, those who are moving out of children's uh, child care downstairs and they're moving up into this next week. I had an opportunity to train them in a book called The Listen Up. I think Ainsley has it right there. Ainsley, hold that. Do you have that Listen Up book there? Yeah, there it is. Uh, and, and in that book, we just talked about how do you take notes as a kid. And um, So for those kids who are doing that, the title for today's message, one of the first things that you see uh, on that page is Transferred from Darkness to Light. If you need help spelling that, I'm sure uh, someone on your, your chair row there can help you. Transferred from Darkness to Light. Transferred from Darkness to Light. And we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 23. Let's read that text together. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this You have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Before we move on, that's going to be the focal point for the rest of today's message. We're going to get that verse, those two verses, 13 and 14, in context, which is why we're reading verses 3 to 23, uh, just to make sure that we get the full context. But our focal point is going to be 13 and 14. So let me read that again. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is your word that feeds our soul. You tell us in Deuteronomy 8 that you hungered, you humbled us and let us hunger, and that you fed with manna, so that we might know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. We thank you for the word and its reality that a hundred years from now, no one will quote these words of mine, but the text that we're looking at today will endure to the end. So would you make this a meal for your hearers today? Let this be food that sustains us, We pray that you would feed us, that you would strengthen us, that you would speak to us, that we may be more and more like you. Your word says in 1 John 4, 6, that whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And so by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let us be good listeners today. Help us to approach your word like a starving person approaches food or like a thirsty desert wanderer approaches water. Help us to hear from you today. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if, if you're like me, you look at Rome, uh, sorry, Colossians 1, 3-23, and you can be overwhelmed by the depth of the richness of the content. I mean, every passage. You could unpack every word, and it could take you into a whole trail of new messages and new thoughts and new applications, and, and it can be so deep and uh, overwhelming sometimes as Paul bounces from one idea to another to another, um, each statement opening up a whole new um, world of explanation and application. 
Sometimes uh, when my kids were younger, I would, uh, we would go into a bedroom or something and say, oh my goodness, this needs to be cleaned up. And uh, after weeks and weeks, sometimes, and, and my office is no different, sometimes Cherie can identify, <laughs> we would go into my office and I would just, sometimes I don't even, I go into my office for a minute and then I turn around and walk out and I come over here where there's no messes and it's a clean you know, environment and, and I can sit in my office and sometimes the, wet, the mess just overwhelms me. And when I was a kid, I remember if I was overwhelmed and I had to clean my room, I would shove everything into the middle in like one big pile. Sometimes the pile would get pretty high, but I would, I would shove everything into the middle and then I would just one thing at a time sort them and bundle them. But these are books and I'll stack them up and these are dirty clothes and they'll go in that pile and clean clothes and toys and whatever else. And it made uh, that process of bundling and sorting and consolidating, it made it more manageable and less overwhelming. And before I knew it, I dealt with the pile and it was clean and and it was able to move on. What does that have to do with this? Uh, sometimes if you take a passage like this, uh, which I did this week, and you bundle and sort the concepts that are listed in a passage like this, line by line, sorting the ideas like sorting laundry before you wash it, all right, colors here and whites here and uh, et cetera, uh, you can sometimes make more sense of a passage if you begin to break it down like that. And so I broke down this passage, and I, I noticed that there are activities of God in this passage. This is just to help us understand the context. Paul is writing to the Colossians. He had never been to Colossae that we know of. Epaphras had likely given his life to Christ through the ministry of Paul in Ephesus or a neighboring city. And Epaphras took the gospel, delivered it to a city called Colossae, and then began to preach the gospel. It took root, the church was formed, believers were made, and Paul, upon hearing about this, fires off this letter of encouragement, and he tells them in this opening section, the activities of God. That's a bundle. He qualified you to share in the inheritance in the saints and light. If you've ever been qualified for something alone or something like that, God qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness. He's transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In Him we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. He has now reconciled you, once alienated and hostile, doing evil deeds in His body of flesh by His death. And He is presenting you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. That's the activity of God. And that's a rich bundle right there. That's not the only bundle that is mentioned in this. There is also not just God's activity, but our activity. Paul prays for them. That's an activity of man. Epaphras went to the Colossians, shared the gospel with them, and taught them truths which they received and understood. And so there was a give and take exchange between Epaphras and a transferring of the gospel to the Colossians. The Colossians heard and understood the gospel of truth. The Colossians learned it from Epaphras. The Colossians' love in the Spirit and their fruitfulness was so evident that Epaphras went and reported back to Paul, and Paul was so excited that he fired off this letter. And he said, one of our other activities is that if you indeed continue in your faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, uh, that, those are some of the activities that we do. But Paul also, another bundle in this passage, is that he tells them about their past and present conditions. This is what's encouraging and where we'll land our message for today. But, but Paul describes for them their past condition and their current condition. He said that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing through the Colossian believers, and that that gospel essentially delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved son, in which they are redeemed and forgiven. They were once alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. Now they're reconciled by Christ's body and presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There are a few other bundles I won't get into. Excellent prayers to pray. There's probably six different things that Paul prays. And if you're stumped in how to pray, this and many other of the Pauline epistles and other New Testament books, Old Testament as well, um, have uh, excellent prayers to pray from the Bible. As a matter of fact, I have a free resource for you, if somebody will remind me, a case of books by Donald Whitney on praying the Bible uh, to be used in your family devotions or in your personal devotions. Uh, it's in a box in the dining room at the office. So I'll make sure and get those over here. 
So those are all the bundles. So with all that depth and content, my goal, as I said before, is to zoom in on Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And the exegetical point of that passage is this. Paul is rejoicing in the reality that the Colossian believers have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus. They were transferred from darkness into the kingdom. There was movement from one place where they were to a whole new place. So the purpose for my sermon today is to magnify God's continuing activity of seeking and saving and transferring people from the domain of darkness to his kingdom. In other words, this isn't something we just read about as a nice thing that used to happen. This is something that is happening right now. People are being transferred currently from the domain of darkness into the light. And so that's where we're going. So let's get into the text, 13 and 14. And and like I said before, you can just follow along and you'll know the outline. He has delivered us. Who is the he? The subject of the sentence is God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and maker of earth. He is the one who is orchestrating sovereignly the activity of transference. And this is true from the beginning of the world. From before creation, Ephesians 1 says that He has chose us, predestined us in Christ to be of His family. He knew this from the beginning, and so God the Father, with Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit, One God and three persons working together for the redemption of man. But He, God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, He is the one who is delivering us from the domain of darkness. Let's talk about the domain of darkness. Very um, ominous sounding. So we'll start with this idea, how did we get there? Who is there? Are we all in the domain of darkness? Were some of us born in the light, to use this biblical metaphor, or were we all born in darkness? How does this play out biblically? Well, the Bible affirms that we were born into darkness. We were born into darkness. I'm quoting um, a very helpful website. If you don't want to look up uh, and don't have the maybe ability to read uh, large theological tomes and commentaries and trees. Sometimes if I just have a quick question, I can find a helpful um, summary that gives me a way to read further if I need to on a website called gotquestions.org. Has anybody ever gone to that website? Just raise your hand. It's a trusted source for over two decades. Um, many pastors and um, lay persons alike use that as a, a way in which you hear a presentation of different viewpoints within biblical orthodox boundaries. And so that website helps me understand that original sin is the reference that Adam's sin of disobedience and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and it's had its effects upon the rest of the human race. And original sin, that is that we are born into sin as a result of Adam's fall, is defined as the moral corruption that we all possess as a consequence of Adam's sin, resulting in a sinful disposition manifesting itself in habitually sinful behavior. Now the church has checked this doctrine many times through history. Uh, there arose a, a deviation called Pelagianism. Pelagianism uh, uh, came from a guy named Pelagius, and he held and taught this view that Adam's sin had no effect whatsoever upon the souls of his descendants other than he just gave them a bad example. Adam's example influenced those who followed him to also sin, But according to the Pelagian view, man has the ability to stop sinning if he just simply chooses to. Pelagianism runs contrary to a number of passages that indicate that man is hopelessly enslaved by his sins apart from God's intervention, and that all of his works are dead or worthless in meriting God's favor. 
A Pelagian view of sin gives us the hope that we can be sinless, which contradicts Scripture such as Romans 3. Uh, If you look at Romans 3, it says that there is no one good, not even one. There are none righteous. Um, Paul writes, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. They are sw- their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Um, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That squashes any idea that we don't inherit a sin nature by virtue of birth. From the very idea that uh, from conception we are sinners, There is no um, hope that we can live a sinless life for a period of time and that our own sinlessness can discount the work of Christ done on the cross. If we could be sinless, why would God send Jesus to die on a cross? It is a false hope. Romans 3 continues, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight. It's very clear language. You would have to do a lot of gymnastics scripturally to get around that. But now, the good news, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and works, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. And it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You got that? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The two other views are Arminianism and Calvinism. They both have some sort of um, idea of original sin as well, but in competing ways. And we don't have to get into that right now. So now that we understand that we're born into the domain of darkness, let's get an idea of what it is. And I hope that being reminded of what the domain of darkness is, this is my hope for you, is that by hearing about this, it will provoke compassion for those who remain in darkness. That for you, the believer, who has been transferred from the domain of darkness into his wonderful light, that for you now hearing about this again would provoke for you some sort of a compassion to to join Jesus on his mission to seek and save the lost. Luke 19.10. The Bible describes darkness in a few different ways. Um, We're going to focus on what it means for people and their spiritual reality. So we're just taking a narrow view of the word darkness. If you were to uh, do a Bible search for every time the word darkness is used, you would see that sometimes God wraps himself in darkness, right? Uh, Job and uh, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Psalm 18.9, he bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. Psalm 18.11, he made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. That's not the kind of darkness that we're talking about applied to God. It's a whole different topic. I shouldn't have even brought it up. The kind of darkness that we're talking about today is the spiritual reality that people face apart from faith in Jesus Christ. They are under the domain of darkness. Spiritual darkness is the Bible's way of describing somebody who is separated from God by sin. Have you ever walked into a dark building or an unfamiliar context and you you just can't see anything? Have you ever been in one of those cave tours and they they have lights, artificial lights deep underground, and then they always do this. They turn out the lights and they say, you know, put your hand in front of your face and, and you can put your hand directly and you can't see anything and you stumble and you bump into people and the longer they leave the lights out, the more of a liability it becomes for that tour company because you're going to trip over stalactites or get hit by stalagmites. I don't know which one is above and which one's below, but, but something bad's going to happen and so the lights go on really quick and, and you get a sense of not just darkness, but like Moses said, darkness will fall over the land. It will be a dreadful darkness that you will feel. That's the kind of darkness 
in which we are born and in which those who are not saved operate in that sort of a darkness. The Apostle John taught that God is light. He said, this is the message we have heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. We are lying if we say that we have fellowship with God but continue to live in spiritual darkness. We practice uh, we do not practice the truth. That's 1 John 5-6. through 6. John 8-12, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we can see here that spiritual darkness means not having fellowship with God through a faith relationship in Jesus Christ. The darkness of separation from God is overcome through Christ. In John 1, 4 through 5, you know this very well. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the, in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's John 1, 4 through 5. So we understand that from the moment Adam and Eve sinned, humans have, fall, have lived in a fallen world, groping around in darkness stumbling toward answers, stumbling toward what they think is light and what turns out to be enslaving to what they think is freedom, but they look down and they find themselves chained and unshackled in the darkness. Satan often lies to us and tells us that this is the way and you will find freedom in it. And in this, uh, as we pursue this way of freedom, we find ourselves enslaved. Remember the prodigal son who left his father's um, safety of his place, seeking freedom, and he found himself a slave feeding pigs. And, and in the kingdom, that principle is reversed because he said, um, uh, how many of my father's servants are better off than me? I will go to my father as a servant. And when he came seeking to be a servant of the father, the father made him a, a son. So, you, so the world, Satan, the enemy, the spiritual darkness says, seek freedom this way and enslaves you. The, the gospel tells you, seek servanthood in Christ and you will become a son and a daughter of the Most High. This one was born in Zion. This is one of our favorite ways of describing that. After we're saved, believers become beacons of spiritual light in Christ. Ephesians 5, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. And then, of course, our passage here um, in Colossians, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Those who reject Jesus face eternal separation from God, as Jude says, in blackest darkness. All that describes the darkness that we um, experience, but, but that's all kind of textbook stuff. Let me just kind of make it real for us here. The day VBS started, somebody drove on to the campus uh, here. Monday's my day off. I, I didn't come in that day until later because VBS was kicking off. I don't know who discovered it. Maybe Cherie, maybe Julie, maybe somebody else, but, but somebody discovered it and asked me, hey, did you see all this stuff? And I said, no, I didn't see anything. What is it? And, and somebody had set up under the tree, behind the mailbox, right on our property, a, um, maybe eight or ten tall statues, Catholic statues, uh, with, with uh, beads, different colored beads all over them. And uh, a couple of uh, plates and iron bowls and... Uh, maybe 40 or 50 different relics and things like that. They were respectfully placed there. They had uh, trash bags covering them uh, in, a, in a way to keep the rain off of them. If you remember that first day of VBS was uh, a little drizzly. Um, and, and so a few people grabbed a Home Depot bucket and some other things and they, they cleaned all that up and they, and they put it in my office and there it sits to this day, all right? Um, because I, I looked through it and I started to wonder what all these things were and I found in there a, a prayer written um, in Spanish to um, the name of a deity or something. And, uh, and so the more I looked into it, the more I researched, it turns out that this was... Um, um, articles and idols from um, a, a religion called uh, Santeria, which is a syncretistic, sinful, of course, um, combination of Catholicism mixed with a sort of uh, voodoo mysticism 
and practiced in a way where there is a, uh, an entire uh, pantheon of gods in this, and each bead wrapped corresponds with, and color corresponds with a Catholic saint, and they practiced this in a way that they would offer sacrifices and prayers and uh, do sort of rituals to please this pantheon of gods for different things, and each god represents a different thing. So the more I dug into this, I'm going to the pizza place, and I see a guy who speaks Spanish, and I say, translate this prayer for me, and I'm asking different people, and I'm calling all these uh, Santeria gift shops and trying to get to the bottom of this, and, and uh, finally, by the end of it, I trace it all out, and I get to this one guy, and he's the son of the proprietor of the shop, and he said, this may be wrong, this is my opinion. The way you're describing it, the way the guy set it up, the way it was arranged, the way that it wasn't in your face, on your porch, with pentagrams and blood, and you know, the way it was kind of arranged in this way, leads me to believe, and I could be wrong, but he said, it leads me to believe that this person found the gods too hard to please, and was trying to transfer all of his stuff in a way that didn't offend the gods, and so he found the, the most holiest place he could think of in the area and, and tried to transfer it. He didn't want to throw these things away. He didn't want to give them away. He didn't want to, um, he didn't want to resell them in a way that would, you know, like Michael Scott said, I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious, right? This is the way that this guy might have been thinking is that, you know, I don't want anything bad to happen to me, so I'm going to gently, kindly offer this, you know, spread at this church and, and just kind of walk away. Now, listen. That gave me a new insight into who put that there and why they put it there in the sense that, that they're entrapped in the domain of darkness, looking for freedom and cannot escape the enslavement of how much do I offer to this deity and how much do I offer to that and what if my beads aren't the right color and I don't wrap them the right way and what if this Catholic saint and this uh, opposite deity in Santa what if it's not working and, and in there there was a prayer, a long written heartfelt prayer for a son that was yet to be born that it would become something great and that it would sort of help their family and that it was not answered and that in every way this was somebody's lost hopes transferred and set up all around us. And listen, this is the reality of people entrapped in the domain of darkness. The gospel has answers so that you don't have to exist in the domain of darkness. The good news of the gospel that Paul wrote to the Colossians is that the gospel is bearing fruit all over the place, delivering people, transferring people from darkness into light. He transferred us to the kingdom. What is the kingdom? The kingdom was taught extensively by Jesus. I have in the notes of my Bible every time the word kingdom, a little K-O-G, K-O-G, K-O-G. And as I read the Gospels in that particular Bible, I see K-O-G, I see K-O-G. Jesus came proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. Jesus came proclaiming that the Kingdom is here. Broadly speaking, the Kingdom of God represents the sovereign rule of God over everything. But narrowly, when Jesus came preaching the Kingdom, He came preaching that the Kingdom of God is the spiritual rule of Jesus over your heart and mine, and those who submit to God's authority willingly are citizens of the kingdom. But those who defy God's authority and refuse to submit to Him will not be a part of the kingdom of God. In this sense, the kingdom of God, in that narrow sense, is spiritual. Jesus said His kingdom is not of this world in John 18.36. Jesus preached that repentance is necessary to be a part of the kingdom of God in Matthew 4:17. In John 3:5 through 7, Jesus equates the kingdom of God with the sphere of salvation. And when Jesus says the kingdom of God must be entered by being born again as he speaks to Nicodemus that only by being born again can one enter the kingdom of God. And then Paul highlights one aspect in this particular sentence in John, I mean Colossians 1:14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's not all of the benefits of being a part of the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. 
There are many. Ephesians 1, if you want to read it, lists a lot of them. But in this passage that we've chosen today, the forgiveness of sins is listed, which is the greatest news in the world in light of the worst news in the world, right? When I preached on how to parent, the first um, topic from Proverbs was to teach your kids the, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is equated to the gospel of faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins is the greatest news in the world in light of the worst news in the world. And the worst news in the world, parents and everyone, but I specifically ask parents to teach their kids this, not to just focus on Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, but this is sin, identifying it, naming it, and punishing it in a way that when they hear that Jesus was punished for their sins, it has meaning for that. A kid who's never punished and here's that Jesus was punished for their sins. What does that mean? Did Jesus have his iPad taken away? Does it mean he had to choose consequences or something? No. Payment for sin was painful. And you shortchange your kids when you skimp on punishment and you don't call sin sin and you just focus on Jesus loves you. That's a whole other sermon if you want to look back at it. The point applies to everyone, though, that the worst news is that you and I are sinners. Born sinners, incapable of sin. We didn't need Jesus to clear a path for us that we were already walking on. The gospel describes salvation as dead in our trespasses. Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones, dead people who didn't need a little help, but people who needed life. People with a heart of stone that needed a heart of flesh, a complete transfer of heart. That's the reality of the biblical idea that we are in sin. God hates sin and must judge sin, meaning that outside of Christ, we must stand judgment for sin. But the good news of the gospel is that God did punish sin. He did. He punished it already. He poured out his divine wrath against sin on his own son at the cross. And to those who seek refuge in Christ by repentance and faith, they find that the wrath of God, Jesus absorbed, and that they find themselves under the righteousness of God. They exchange their sin, applied to Jesus on the cross, and they receive in return, by faith, salvation by grace, and the forgiveness of sins is one of those things. Paul points out other realities, though, in this passage, not just the forgiveness of sins. That's not the only reality that we're, sins are forgiven. We're also redeemed, um, he started Colossians saying that your faith in Christ Jesus has produced love for all the saints and hope. Faith, hope, and love, that sort of trifecta uh, of spiritual blessing and fruit as a result of the Holy Spirit's indwelling in us. Um, the gospel bears fruit and transforms. It delivers from the domain of darkness. It redeems. It forgives. We were alienated and hostile doing evil deeds. But now, this is incredible news, now we are reconciled, and when God sees us, we are presented holy, blameless, and above reproach. You know, when God looks at you, Christ follower, He sees you as holy, blameless, and above reproach, regardless of what you did last night. Because in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are uh, in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean there's cheap grace and that you can just live however you want. It means that because of the grace that God gave you, you want to pursue Him, that you want to follow Him, and you want to live a life, and you want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, is what Paul wrote to the Colossians earlier. So it's not cheap grace, but there's grace enough that the forgiveness of sins allows God to look at you and in Christ see you as holy, blameless, righteous, and above reproach. Isn't that beautiful? If you didn't have a reason to sing today, that should fuel you. In addition, he said in this passage, he's qualified you to share in a future inheritance. He's delivered you. He's transferred you. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's reconciled you, and he's presenting you holy, blameless, and above reproach. That's your identity in Christ. So how should we respond to these realities? Let me give you two categories. How should we respond listening to this message? For the unbeliever, don't waste another moment in darkness. Groping, searching for clues, searching for answers that are elusive, 
searching for something that uh, the enemy has promised. In this, you'll find hope. And then you find yourself enslaved. The, the truth of the gospel is in the beauty is in its simplicity. There's not hidden meanings. There's not uh, secret things that have to be real. It is clear and plain for all to see. If you're an unbeliever, don't waste another moment in darkness. Remember when Jesus healed the, the 38-year-old paralytic sitting by Solomon's colonnade in the pool? And, and there was some kind of a weird legend that if an angel stirred up the, the water, that the first one who kind of found their way into the water would be healed. And, and Jesus came to a guy and, and he asked him, you know, do you want to get well? And he said, well, every time I try and no one's going to help me. And every time I, it doesn't. And, and Jesus asked him, do you want to be well? And that's a... That's an interesting point that Jesus would ask somebody who is trapped in the condition that he was in, do you want to get well? We can become so accustomed to the darkness that it, it, we don't want to leave it. And Jesus said in John 1, men loved darkness and they refused to come into the light. No person, hell is just a trajectory of the lifelong choices that a sinful person makes, embracing sin and rejecting the way of salvation. If you're not yet a believer, let me urge you not to walk another moment in darkness. Repent and believe in Jesus before it's too late. J.C. Ryle, a quote that stuck with me the past few weeks is that hell is truth believed too late. The acknowledgement from Philippians 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. If you're an unbeliever, don't waste another moment in darkness. If you're a believer, here's some application for you. Worship. Worship. If, if this doesn't give you reasons to worship, if, you're, if, you, if your eyes and your gaze tend to drop down to your circumstances, and like Peter, you see the winds and the waves, and, and, and you, you start to sink, and, and, and like Jesus said in the parable of the, the seeds, the one that um, fell among the thorns, um, was, was so obsessed with worries, riches, and the pleasures of life that it never, really, it never really bore any fruit. It was so consumed with worldly things, failing to lift our gaze like Jesus told Mary and Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about a great many things, and only one thing is needed, to sit at the feet of the Messiah. Right? If you're a believer, lift your gaze upward. See that your focal point is... Jesus. Stephen, Acts 6, 7, persecuted. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Most High. And that's what caused the stones to start flying. His focus on Jesus and his desire to focus on him above else. Let that be the focal point for worship for you, believer. Of course, what Dwayne outlined before, gratitude and thanksgiving. Realize how much you have to be grateful for. You might think, oh, my situation is terrible and, and nothing is working out for me. And then if you dwell on your spiritual realities that we've learned here, it should well up within you a heart of gratitude. You were once in darkness. You've been transferred to life. You were alienated and hostile, doing evil deeds. Now, but now you are in the kingdom of God. Be grateful. And then let me lastly say this, and we'll spend the last five minutes on this. Participate in the mission. And this is where we're going to end up, is that the transfer that we read about in Colossians 1, that God is actively moving people, continues today. Jesus, as de uh, described in Luke 19, is on a relentless search and rescue mission. And you can participate in that. Luke 19.10 Zacchaeus is up in a tree. Jesus is about to pass by. He sees the trajectory of Jesus. He sees the sycamore tree. He's a little dude, right? So you can't see Jesus because of the crowd. And so he picks that spot on this tree. And sure enough, Jesus comes by. And as Jesus gets under the tree, he looks up and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I, I, I need to come to your house today. I'm going to eat with you today. And in the context of that, Zacchaeus welcomes him and the Pharisees and the legalists grumble. He's eating with sinners. Doesn't he know who this guy is? And, and then Zacchaeus, in a moment of repentance, says, if I've defrauded anyone, I'll give back half of my possessions to the poor and I'll pay back what I owe. And, and Jesus says to him, 
Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That phrase, Jesus seeking and saving the lost, triggers a rescue mission in our mind. Jesus is on a rescue mission and he wants you to participate in it. Think of some sort of a hostage situation where people are held captive and an elite team of people and, you know, SWAT gear are kind of finding their way into and releasing the captives. Jesus is doing that, rescuing people from the domain of darkness. I remember the Oklahoma City bombing that uh, a few uh, days as that uh, building, the Murrah building in Oklahoma City uh, crumbled, uh, that rescuers began going in and just search and rescue. Weeks and weeks on end, just day and night, lights just trying to find um, any rescuer. Today, there is what's called the Rescuer's Grove surrounding the survivor tree, the tree that was yards away from that blast and somehow managed to survive and thrive, became a symbol of hope as the rescuers could see this tree that was living despite this detonation, and they, they went into that building, and under all those stories of rubble, tried to look for people, brought in cadaver dogs, and sometimes they would hide in the rubble a living person because the cadaver dogs were so discouraged that they weren't finding living people that they would, they would post rescuers so that the dogs could help their spirits be lifted. This sort of rescue idea. Uh, last year, I ran in a 5K, two years ago in a 5K, called the Red Bandana Wells Crowther Bandana. You remember the Wells Crowther story? On September 11th, 21 years ago today, um, New Yorkers, with extraordinary courage, rescuers went in to those twin towers. And one of those heroes was a man they just knew had a red bandana. The story goes like this. When hijacked flight 175 hit the World Trade Center's South Tower, people on the 78th floor sky lobby huddled together, frightened and confused. There was no escape as far as they could tell. Then all of a sudden, a man with a red bandana covering his nose and mouth suddenly appeared from the wreckage and the smoke. And he spoke in a calm voice and he guided them to a stairway, leading them down to safety. That man in the red bandana made three trips to that same sky lobby, saving as many people as he could until the burning building collapsed. Now, every year there's a race in honor of Wells Crowther, a guy who's identified by that red bandana that his uh, grandfather had given to him uh, as a, something to hold. And he, he wore it everywhere, everywhere, every sport he participated in, every time he lifted, every day he had it in his back pocket. And on the day of his uh, rescue 21 years ago that he was up and down, up and down rescuing these people, he, he was carrying that same red bandana and it's a way they used to identify him. Listen, this is the kind of mission Jesus has not stopped in this search and rescue mission. He's currently, at this moment, around the world and right here, searching and rescuing, searching and transferring, seizing individuals with his love and his grace and his mercy, and he's shuttling them to safety in the domain, from the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of the Lord, and ultimately into the promised land. Paul, when he recounted his testimony in Acts 26, he talked about the Damascus Road. He said that the light was as bright as day at midday. Around midday, the light hit us and we fell to the ground. He said, I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goad. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Listen, Acts 26.18, Paul's own testimony, 26.18 says, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Listen, that's not Old Testament stuff. That's not just New Testament stuff. Just two weeks ago, we had a men's breakfast and I met a guy sitting across from me. I don't know if he's here today. Uh, I think he goes to another church, but, but he said a couple years ago during COVID, 
My teenage son came out of the room and just told my wife and I, hey, I believe in Jesus now. And they said, you know, they were troubled. And they said, okay. And, and then they began to call friends and say, what, do we, what should we do? And they said, call a psychiatrist. He's, he's losing his mind. And, you know, they kept telling him to, you know, something's wrong. And something, but as they watched him over a period of weeks and months, his behavior began to change. His character changed. His, his demeanor changed. There was peace there. There was all this stuff going on in his life that was good. And, and finally, his dad irritable about all these things, contacted Curry. And, uh, and what did he say to you, Curry? He said, he said, the only one of his friends that said, that's fantastic, right? That's fantastic. Praise God. And, and that response set this guy on a path where one day in his garage, irritable, not happy with the direction that his son was going, he just had an impression of a voice that said, don't persecute your son just because you don't know me. And he said he had stopped him. Stopped him right where he was. And he, if I remember right, kind of looked around. And then, he, and then immediately following that, he said there was issued to me an invitation, but you can't know me. And he followed. He, he yielded to that and, and gave his life to Christ right there in his garage. And, and then he came, what, six or eight months that happened. And then now he's, he was at our men's Bible study. and He could not stop talking about Jesus. He couldn't stop talking about how God had saved him. Listen, we're reading Old Testament, New Testament stuff here. And you, you can say all that's in the past. This is happening right now. I baptized Nicole a few weeks ago. And she said, before Christ, life was confusing. And I was searching for answers and groping. And then through Tiffany and her witness and these questions and answers that Jesus made himself known to me. And in my room, I, I remember giving my life to Christ and submitting. And this, this is the beautiful picture that's happening right now. You can be a part of it. You can be a part of it, Christ follower. You can be on mission with Christ. My hope that you'll join Jesus in this divine rescue mission. This is unifying to the body of Christ. If we're on mission together, listen, if we bite each other and devour each other, eventually we'll be consumed by each other. If, if we take our gaze off Christ and the mission for which he's called us and we, we bicker with each other and we get divisive with each other and we don't like this song and we don't like that carpet color and we don't like this sermon and we don't like that speaker and, we don't, and then we start to think, well, maybe there's a church that will feed me what I'm looking for and the things that I want and we'll bounce from place to place like a consumer and the end of our life, we will never have been on mission and on purpose and on task, but we have, a, we have an opportunity, an open window to be on mission to seek and save the lost as Jesus is transferring them from the domain of darkness into his light. Well, Lord Jesus, uh, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the way in which we are able to hear it today and, and for what this did for my own heart. Uh, just even this morning, reading a couple of these sentences, uh, just, I just got teary. I got a little weepy thinking about you at this moment, searching and rescuing, seizing and transferring people by your love. And I prayed for a number of people that you would open their eyes that they may see the wonder and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That no longer would something else captivate their heart and their attention other than your redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that that message would be enough. So much so that we would live the rest of our days. I don't, maybe I don't know about this thing or I don't know about that thing, but one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Let that be the cry of our hearts together as we seek to be on mission. For those who don't yet know you, I pray that they would no longer remain in the domain of darkness. But for those who do know you, let them be captivated by your glory and let them be on mission, united with believers here at this congregation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.